ask his blessing for our hearing and for our hearts. Our great God, we, we thank you. We gather here to sing to you. We gather here to practice what you have given us. We also um, gather here to hear from you. We hear from you through one another and, and even in the truth in the songs we sing and the truths that we rehearse in, in communion, but especially we hear as you, Holy Spirit, take your word and you apply it to our hearts and our lives. Would you reveal more of yourself to us this morning? Would you help us to hear it and receive it? Would you be glorified as you come to do that now? We'll give you this time to that end in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we all go through circumstances that we can't understand. We have times, every one of us do and every one of us will, when um, we don't know what to do. What marks a believer when he can't understand is that he knows that he knows the God who does understand. Second Samuel 12 is a passage that's uh, it's right in the middle of David's great fall. If you were here together with us last week, we heard about David's adultery with Bathsheba. But, but there's something profound that is maybe easy to miss in this passage. I don't know if miss is the right word, because if you read these chapters as a believer, I think you don't miss them. You just might not be conscious of them. Um, in these passages, we learn a lot about life. We learn a lot about our relationship with God. We learn a lot about the consequences of sin and um, the realities of God's goodness and mercy. But, but most of all, and what I want to be conscious for us to see this morning is, is that we get to know the very character of God. And that is even far more valuable than any lesson we can learn, right? Because we're going to have times we don't know and we don't understand. But what marks us as believers is that we know the God who does. David has been uh, brought from being a shepherd boy out in the fields, uh, shepherd for an obscure family in an obscure town, to become the king of all Israel. And it has been the story of God's continued faithfulness to David that has carried him to magnificent heights, even as he has continued to trust the Lord. But now after much success and much trusting in the Lord, David has been faithless, and he has seized what was not his. Back in chapter 4, some of you may remember, some men came to David. Uh, they, they had tried to seize the kingdom for David, and they thought he would reward them, of course. Instead, David said to them in so many words, I don't need you to try to seize it for me because the Lord has, and now I'm giving a direct quote, the Lord has redeemed me out of every adversity. One commentator has titled his um, two-volume commentaries on First and Second Samuel with the phrase from that chapter, out of every adversity. It's a pretty good summary of what the whole book of Samuel is about, how God had a plan for David, God sought David, chose David, put his hand upon him, and then out of every adversity imaginable, God has redeemed David and raised him up to do through him a mighty work and ultimately an eternal work that affects every one of us who are followers of Christ today. What we find in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, though, in this passage is that the greatest adversity for David is not external, it's internal. It's David himself, just as it is for us. The biggest adversity is ourselves. What we'll see, though, as God deals with that adversity 
for David is we will see God's perfect character doing God's perfect work. This is the God that we deeply need to know, the God of justice and the God of grace. Pick up with me in Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. We'll start in verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, now, sorry, I don't know if I set this up completely. David uh, thinks he's gotten away with adultery and murder and multiple layers of deceit, and it seems like he's going to get off scot-free, except um, somebody knows all about it, and that's the Lord, and he sends his prophet. So here we go. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor, my king, just adding that in to get the flavor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and he grew up together with him and his children. He would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, my king, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against that man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Let's pause right there. First off, what I take in this passage is comfort in his justice and comfort in his grace. First this morning, comfort in his justice and comfort in his grace, as we will see both of those woven throughout our passage this morning. I want to start by by noticing that God does something at the beginning of chapter 12 that David has done many times throughout chapter 11. He sent. Uh, We saw a lot of sending in chapter 11, if you'll remember. There's another sending that starts off chapter 12, but it's especially important who does the sending in this case. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. After it had seemed that, that David had gotten away with so much evil, The Lord sent Nathan. The Lord will not allow his child to sin with impunity. He will not stand by passively and allow his son to to heap up evil upon evil. He will not allow his own name to be dishonored. This is justice, and this is good. It is good that he brings sin to account. It is is good that he brings judgment. If we have a God who does not judge sin, then woe to us and woe to the universe if we do not have righteousness in the heavens. But our God is righteous. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. He's going to take a a sin, well, sins, that, that maybe a handful of people knew. There were messengers sent back and forth and people who witnessed the coming and the going of Bathsheba and and then there was Joab and his part in the killing of her husband Uriah and and on and on we don't know exactly how many but what God is going to do is he's going to take David's sin and he is going to bring it into the the full flooded light of day so that his repentance can become as well known as his sin that's what God is going to do God doesn't always do it that way, and he doesn't have to do it that way, but it's what he chooses to do here, and he is right to do it 
injustice. This is good. But I also want you to understand something else as well. When the Lord sends Nathan to David, <coughs> that is not just justice. It is also grace because it's rescue. Even God's justice is his grace for the child of God. Even God's justice is his grace. And we find comfort on both ends as children of God. It is comforting to know that God will deal with sin. It is also comforting to know that God will deal with sinners. And he will seek them and pursue them. He will convict them and he will draw them back. When God sends conviction to you, yes, you should be humbled. Yes, I should be maybe even be ashamed, but I should also be encouraged. You should also be comforted because you have a Savior who is beginning that first step of that work of grace in his life to demonstrate to you how far you or I might be out of bounds. The Lord is good to convict his own. This is the first part of his redemption. It is that for us and it is that for David here, the opening phrase of chapter 12. Another thing we need to notice here and this opening part of our passage sings it. it. It illustrates it in spades. And it's that our actions look different when they're seen from God's perspective. When, when we see things from, from God's perspective, suddenly our actions look very different sometimes don't they? There's so much to see here in this passage. We won't barely begin to have time to touch on this morning, this morning but, but just notice the blatant selfishness of the rich man. It says he has flocks and herds, not just flocks, but also herds, and many flocks and many herds. Uh, the luxury of options, if he wants to practice hospitality as a good Israelite, as would be custom in the ancient Near East when this traveler comes to him, Many opportunities, but, you know, he just didn't want to take one of his own. So he took all that the poor man had. Contrast the blatant selfishness of the rich man with the poor man and his one little ewe lamb that he has in tenderness, that he cares for. There's togetherness. It says that this little one sleeps in his bosom. I, I think today of, um, of how... Um, Ladies uh, sometimes are, are prone to uh, carry around small dogs in purses wherever they go. I, I think that's in some sense the idea here, right? We should hear the delight of the poor man in this little ewe lamb. It's all that he has, and he cherishes this one. This is, uh, this is not just dinner. This is not a mercenary care. This is, this is a pet. No, it's much more than a pet. What, is, what, is, uh, what does Nathan call the ewe lamb in this passage? He says it was, it was like a daughter to him. By the way, where we're reading in the Hebrew, there's, uh, <laughs> there's some verbal connections here that are, wow. Uh, the word for daughter is bot. This is, uh, this is the man's bots. Do you remember the name of Uriah's wife in Hebrew? Bat Sheba. That's her name. Her name's mean, ma name means daughter of Yoth, but uh, there's a little linguistic connection here. Even before David knows where the story is going, 
And he doesn't, he doesn't tell the story as though, hey, king, I heard a cool story. I want to share it with you. He doesn't start off with uh, like the, uh, the authors of the gospel sometimes do. do and, and the Lord Jesus told a parable. No, he doesn't say, hey, I've got a story. I've got a parable. He says, hey, let me tell you about something that happened. And so David's all in. How does David respond to this story? He responds by, by speaking a judgment. This is, it's common that to him would come the most difficult situations, uh, the trials or the things in need of judgment. And as king, he would, he would pronounce righteousness and fix that situation. David doesn't know yet that the story's about him. We know because we've read it before. We're kind of familiar with it. But David doesn't know. And yet Nathan, even in telling the story, he knows where he's going and he makes some of these connections. This man who's bought, slept in his bosom, was taken. There's a lot of little connections there. What creativity Nathan has in telling the story. Um, it's not easy to confront a king, a man with a word who can have your head. We don't actually know how much of the of the genius of Nathan's approach is due to Nathan and how much is due directly to God. If God said, say this, we, we just don't know. But in either case, this is this is genius. It's easy to see by the time we get to verse four, David's treachery as it's been made a an illustrious painting for us, a tapestry through, through Nathan's story. You are the man, you will tell him, in all of your selfishness, in all of your evil, in all of your treachery. It's easy to see David's treachery when we see it from God's perspective, but then again, it's always easy to see <laughs> because things look so different when we see them from God's perspective. Why do we read God's word every day? Why do we come to church every week? Why do we study and why do we pray? It's because we constantly need renewing in God's perspective. And you know, you know what it's like when, when you're seeing things the way he sees it and your heart is loving and hating things the way he loves and he hates. It's easy. But when you're not and when I'm not, it's really tough to do what's right. There's comfort, though, here in knowing. For David, even though he royally blows it, that God is justice. God is just, pardon me, and God is gracious. And for us, even though so often our perspective is not what it should be and we royally blow it, yet God is just and God is gracious. We take comfort in both. Now, Let's notice something about two sides of God's ways with us. Let's see sin forgiven and that sin has consequences. Sin forgiven and that sin has consequences. Verse 7, Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. 
have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel under the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you, so surely die. Pause there. Sin forgiven, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, sin has consequences. I want to make four observations, and in them we will see the interplay of the God of justice and the God of grace. First observation from this portion is that God is given richly, and David is taken. This is not new news to us. Notice uh, three times in, in verse 8, it mentions David's take, uh, pardon me, it, 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 mentions, um, it mentions God's giving. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives. I also gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. By the way, I want to pause there. I gave you your master's wives. Uh, Saul's wives. Um, there's good reason to think that's actually a metaphorical statement, not a literal statement. I'm not trying to protect the character of God or protect anybody else here. But as we compare this passage with what we know in the other passages in Samuel, also the parallel accounts found in Chronicles and in Kings, first of all, we don't have record of Saul having a whole lot of wives. Uh, we, we know of one wife and one concubine, I believe, total. Um, and the one concubine is not taken by David, but rather is taken by one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth. Remember that one? Um, we, we just don't have record of David taking uh, Saul's wives. It's, it's possible that, that Saul had uh, multiple wives. It's possible that David took them. And maybe we just don't have any record of it. If so, so be it. I'm, I'm more inclined, though, to to think that what is here is a picture of, of God telling David, look, I gave you all that was Saul's, even down to the most intimate, the most personal. I withheld nothing from you. I gave you the throne and the land and the tribes. And then there's, here's God's goodness. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you more besides. All you had to do was ask. Huh. This is, um, this is a, a healthy protector for us, a healthy shield before we sin, if we are tempted to sin, go back and recount, what has God given me? Because often we might think, wow, I want this, I need this, I, I deserve this. But we go back and we start recounting, what has God already given? And then as we begin to see God in his grace and God in his mercy, we realize, you know what, what good thing would he withhold from those who love him? What, what good thing would he withhold? If it really is good, if I were to ask, why not ask of him? And suddenly I'm in the place not contemplating sin and seizing and taking. I'm in the place of contemplating, asking and submitting and receiving. Sadly for David, it's after the fact and the Lord will have to remind him once again. After trusting me for so long, you went and you took. Just like I said would happen with you kings of Israel. 
So we'll see the results of such selfishness, and it is, it is stunning. The second observation I want you to notice is that God's sentence for David is soberingly just. God's sentence for David is soberingly just. Man, oh man, as I read through this and saw the connections, huh, it's hard. But man, is it good for our souls, and boy, is it sobering. Once you notice, there's a, a three-part judgment that God gives to David as a result of all he has done, and I want you to see how perfectly the punishment fits the crime. Um, notice, uh, I'll, I'll give you what David's done, and then I'll give you the punishment. Verse 9, um, he says in the middle of verse 9, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. So what is God's first judgment that will come to David? Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. The rest of the book of 2 Samuel, guys, I'm sorry to tell you, is not going to be a whole lot of fun. Because there is going to be record of violence upon violence. Because David has sinned with impunity against God's grace. This was not out of ignorance. How fitting the punishment was for the crime there. Second sin. Notice in the middle of verse 10. David's second sin. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So what is the second sentence? Verse 11. Thus says the Lord. Um, actually go in the middle of verse 11. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. You know the one thing that's different between what David did and what the sentence will be that will fall upon David's household? What David did happened in secret. What God will do to David's household will happen on the roof of his house in broad daylight, and we will read about that in coming chapters. Huh. The punishment fits the crime. And then thirdly, notice this. Mentioned twice here, but it's easy to skip over that David has done in sin. Verse, verse 9, the very beginning. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? And then um, notice again the middle of verse 10. Because you have despised me. W what is it that David has done that he has despised God's word and he has despised God? Well, he's broken the law, right? I mean, at least four of the Ten Commandments fell in rapid-fire fashion back in chapter 11. But it's not just that. It's not just that he that he broke his law or despised his word in that way. I think there's another word in view here that the Lord is referring to. I think it's the word that was given to David in 2 Samuel 7. It's the promises. It's the, it's the incredibly gracious covenant. He's like, look, I, I just told you. You wanted to make me a house? And I said, hey, thanks, but you don't need to make me a house. Did I ever tell anybody to make me a house? I never told anybody. But you know what? I'll make you a house. And he just lavishes grace upon grace on David. Remember the covenant. And it's, it's, it's beautiful what he says he's going to do for David. And he's going to give him a descendant who will sit on the throne forever. And he said, I'll, 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 treat, I'll treat your descendants like they are sons to me. And I will chasten them, yes, when they sin. But I will never depart from them or take away my grace towards them. I think that's what David has despised here by his taking. So let me just go back. Second uh, Samuel 7, let me just read this to you, verses 11 and 12. This is part of the covenant promise. 
I will give you rest from all your enemies, God tells David. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you. And David has despised a house and the raising up of a descendant. So guess what the punishment is going to be? Verse 11, back in 2 Samuel 12. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. Wow. Is that not fitting punishment for the crime? Men and women, as I read this passage, that's scary. If God gave back to me punishment fitting for every one of my crimes and of my sins, I couldn't stand. I would have nothing. I'd be destroyed. I'd be a laughingstock. I'd be, I'd be ashamed to the name of God, and so would you. Praise God that he doesn't give us punishment so perfectly fitting for our crimes, but, but there are times when it's tailor-made, And this is one of those. This is the God with whom we have to do. The punishment fits the crime well, and in fact, it is scary. What should we take away from this, men and women? If we are prone to trifle with with sin, then be sobered. Yes, you know a God who is gracious. Yes, you have a a Savior uh, through whom you can be forgiven. But understand, sometimes there are consequences that come, and they are self-chosen by what you and I will give ourselves to. That is good for us before we sin. What we'll see here at this point, as we will see often in the passage, is that interwoven with this justice is grace. Third observation, after we saw that God's sentence for David is soberingly just, third observation is God's sentence for David is profoundly mercy. God's sentence for David is profoundly mercy. There we have his huge um, crying, begging, pleading, humbling, falling on his face confession in verse 13, right? It was huge, right? No, it happened so fast we almost missed it. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, when I read it, I slowed down to make sure that we didn't miss it. It happens that fast. And yet, look at how huge is God's response. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. David, who just said when he heard the story of the rich man, that man is a son of death, a little literal translation from the Hebrew. He is a son of death, and he shall have to pay back fourfold. Nathan says to him, well, you're right. You do deserve to die, but you won't. God has put away your sin or taken away your sin. This is scandalous. This is grace that that runs the risk of being like not even right. You know what I mean? And yet it reminds us of the grace of God towards us when he doesn't give us (laughs) the punishment fitting for our crime. In every way that that his justice was sobering in its punishment So in every way, this is shocking and scandalous in its graciousness and mercy. Why does he not destroy David? In fact, you know what's an even more interesting question. Why does God receive David's repentance here and he didn't receive Saul's? 
We've been reading through the book Samuel. We know the author is well familiar with it. These are two starkly different responses from God. Is it because David is like super better at repenting? Well, there's a couple of Psalms, 51 and 32, that we referenced last week that show that David is pretty good at repenting, but I don't think there's a whole lot right here that happens that Nathan has to go on or that God has to go on at this point. Because I don't even think that's the main reason for the stark contrast in the response. Is it that David's a better repenter? No. The real issue is that David has a better covenant. David has covenant promises that Saul never knew. Do you remember what I just read that that God said to David that he would do for his descendant? He says, and when he sins, I will discipline him as a son. But I will not take my love away from him. Do you know what God is doing right now with David? He's disciplining him as a son. That's his grace. And he says, but I won't take my spirit from you. I won't take the kingdom from you. I won't take from you all of this that I have planned for you. I have every right to do it, but I won't. God's sentence for David is profoundly mercy. Yahweh will keep his covenant. Yahweh will keep his promise, even in spite of David's profound sin. And Yahweh will discipline him as a son. Brothers and sisters, does this not encourage us? to know even when we have royally blown it because we've lost God's perspective, we have a better covenant. He has promised, I will not take my love from you. I will not leave you nor forsake you, but I will discipline you as a son and as a daughter. God knows hearts. God makes promises. God keeps promises. And God can be prayed to even in the moment when we stand under righteous judgment. He can still be sought. In fact, that's the very thing we're about to see, but give it a second. Before we get there, the fourth observation from this section is that God's sentence for David is achingly tragic. God's sentence for David is achingly tragic. We go from justice to grace and back to tragic justice again. Verse 14. However, Nathan says, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Be careful here how you read this passage. And be careful how you extrapolate because of what it doesn't say. Because just because the Lord pronounces judgment, it does not mean that he is dispassionate in doing so. A child will die through no fault of his own. Do you think God understands that? Do you think God knows that that's not just in some sense? But the real question is, do we think we have a God who doesn't care? It never says that God grieves over the death of this little one in the passage, but I think, as we'll see in just a moment, the grief of a righteous man, as David will eventually be rightly called again, is an echo of the grief in heaven. I think the Lord hates to pronounce this judgment, but for reasons which only he knows he does. The sentence for David is achingly tragic. When we sin, repent, be forgiven, because that's the character of our God. 
But before we sin, be sobered. Because sin has consequences. And one of the consequences, as God has deigned, will be the death of the child. You and I can decide we don't like it. We can decide we can't explain it. But it doesn't really matter what we think. I trust God that he knows exactly what he's doing. And in doing exactly what is right and perfect in the end, I think he also grieves that he had to do it in this case. And the child will die. But the fruit of God's work will go far beyond circumstances. By the way, I should pause here. I need to add one more line. If you fear for the unfairness towards the child, I invite you, when you get to heaven, ask him if he thinks the Lord mistreated him. See what he says. The fruit of God's work will go beyond the the circumstantial, beyond the temporal, beyond this life and these days. For the child, God's work will be eternal. For David, it will be internal. Let's thirdly see the fruit of God's good work. In the next section, let's see the fruit of God's good work. We're not told Psalm 51 at this point. We're not told Psalm 32 at this point. But as I've alluded to those and we've read portions of those, we we know that David's repentance was genuine. We know that he was struck to the heart. This was not just for, um, you know, political cover up. But he dealt with God and God met him. I believe what happens in verses 15 and following is a brand new David. (laughs) I, I don't even think you barely could compare the David from verses 1 through 14 or the verses uh, or, or the David from, from chapter 11 than you can to the David from verses 15 and beyond. Let's, let's pick that up and see the fruit of God's good work. So Nathan went to his house. His job was done. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child. And David fasted and he went and he lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and he would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Pause there. I believe that what we see in this portion is a David who has radically changed. God has done heart work, and and I think it's a David who is radically changing. I think it's those seven days. I I, I think... Maybe, as, as I put together the pieces of the passage, maybe he laid on his face all night long for seven nights, praying and fasting and weeping. 
He knows that the child's death is due to him, not to the child. He knows that the child is innocent. And in his grief, I believe he's humbled and he's broken and he cries out. He's a changed man. This is a real work by the presence of a very real God that sometimes we meet only and best in our darkest moments. That's where we find his character. And the presence of God there bears very real fruit. So much so that I don't think that it's inappropriate at this point to call David a good man. I think what we, f- we see in this passage is the example of a good man. This Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I want to make a peculiar application of the fruits of the works of a good man. Let me give you a couple. First, a good man strives for the life of the innocent. A good man strives for the life of the innocent. What is David doing for this infant? He's praying and fasting and weeping and crying out. God has spoken. Are you kidding me? God already said the child's going to die. But David knows enough about the character of God to know just because he has pronounced, there may yet be room. Even under the weight of that pronouncement, David knows God well enough to know he may yet relent because he is full of grace, because he does care about this little one. So I will do everything in my power. As long as that child has breath, I will do everything in my power to pray that God might spare him and that he might be a glorious testimony to God's mercies. (laughs) Who knows? God may relent. A good man strives for the life of the helpless. Men and women, some of you strive for the life of the helpless, for the life of the innocent through your work with CareNet through your work with other agencies or just in your prayer life. Abortion is such a hard thing. Those who are contemplating an abortion are in such a hard spot. You know what it's going to take for any glory to come out of that? It's going to take good men and good women who strive for the lives of the innocent. Thank you for those who do that. Let's be encouraged. Similarly, A good man grieves for the suffering of the innocent. A good man grieves for the suffering of the innocent. He, David here is praying that the the child may live. But all the while, the child is sick and the child is suffering. And David is grieving. We're not going to win every battle. That's in God's hands. That's only as the Lord may will. We must do our part, but we will entrust to the Lord who is wise beyond eternity as to what he will do. But for us, a good man, a good woman, it is right for us to grieve that the innocent suffer, right? That's what we find here. Lastly, I just want you to notice in this section that we have hope for the little ones. We have hope for the little ones who die before their time. Verse 23, David ends his explanation of of why he is now singing and eating and showering and anointing his head and putting on clean clothes. 
It's the exact opposite of how it should work, right? There's a death, there should be grief, right? And you can say David's kind of already done his hard grieving before the death happened. I'm sure there's an emotional component to it that I don't think is unspiritual to mention. But I think here David has submitted himself to God's will. He has embraced the punishment, even on behalf of the child, though David hates it and though he knows God hates it. He knows what is and he knows God is sovereign and God is wise. But notice his explanation at this point in 23. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Some commentators have said, be careful that you not read too much into this, because all we have here is a statement from David. I can't bring him back from the grave. And instead of him coming back, I'll go to him. He died, I'll die. Maybe but I'm not buying it because this understand in context, men and women is the reason for David's hope. It's the reason for David's peace. It's the reason for David's rejoicing. And what reason does he give? I will go to him. David fully expects to see the child again. There's only one way he's going to see the child again, not just because if the child is dead, but if the child is with the Lord. I think that's David's understanding, and that's his hope. And I think that's a profound encouragement for us. We have hope for the little ones lost before their time, that they are with the Lord. Can, can I quote that that is a promise for every infant or every preborn? I can't. But boy, this passage is rich, and it is hopeful, isn't it? In fact, I dare say in the wisdom of God, heaven forbid that we could quote a passage that said that. I almost fear to say this, but because we know the depravity of man, who knows what people would do with such a promise that babies go straight to heaven, right? The point of that is God is smarter than we are. <laughs> and there is enough hope in this passage for me. This is the fruit of God's good work. We see David now hoping for life with God and I believe being reunited with the child after the grave. <laughs> you guys want to gather together on that day when we see David and the child walk along the streets of gold one day? Who wants to be there? Lastly, beauty from ashes beauty from ashes as if we haven't had enough this passage just pours out grace upon grace in the midst of this painful justice and righteousness of God there is so much grace verse 24 then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son and he named him Solomon now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Um, the naming of the child Solomon, by the way, when you read the parallel passages, isn't quite as clean and simple as it's recorded in 2 Samuel 12. But if you find that entertaining just for that sake, you can go read about it. Solomon is a derivative of the word shalom in Hebrew, by the way. This child of peace given to a man of violence from whom the sword shall never depart from his house. Wow. 
How about Jedediah? I think the correct reading, and from the commentators, and uh, as best I could tell this week, I think it's Nathan who calls the child Jedediah. Or else when it says he named him Jedediah, it's maybe just God himself who told Nathan to name him Jedediah. Jedediah means beloved of the Lord, as the passage alludes to it. He gave birth to a son, and the Lord loved him. What a profound word of grace and peace at this moment. What I want you to see, it's not just that David had comforted his wife. By the way, some of you might be thinking here, are you kidding me? If I'm Bathsheba, that man don't come in my house, much less my bedroom. All I can say is God has done a profound change in David, and I believe Bathsheba's experienced it. I believe she receives the comfort and the love. I, I believe the two of them mourn and grieve and weep together. I think it's a right understanding of this passage. And in time, he lay with her again, and she conceived, and this was God's gift to give her another son, and I believe they rejoiced together. They named that child after peace. All of that is awesome. And God saying, I love this child. That's awesome. But you know what? We have to step back and see there's something even more amazing going on because we can only really see it if we see the whole book of Samuel. Do you know what's really going on here? Consider this. God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, and what was part of that promise? That he would always have a descendant who would sit upon the throne. Question. Through David's many wives and concubines, through whom came the son that the promise came for that descendant to come to earth? Answer, Solomon. Through the wife of adultery. Does that make any sense to you? Does that make any sense to me? I have been stunned by this reality for years now. I mean, I really can. Most stuff, I just get stunned this week, right, as I study. I'm like, wow, who knew that was there? That's crazy. I'd like to offer you what I would call the Solomon Principle. The Solomon Principle is that God, in his stunning mercy, is free to bring blessing howsoever he sees fit. <laughs> the promise will come through Solomon's lineage. He's not the oldest son. He's not the firstborn son. He's from the wife of adultery. And yet God says, no, through this one will pass my great promise. I can't even wrap my brain around that except to stand back and worship and say, Lord God, look at how great you truly are. This is beauty from ashes, if there ever could be such thing. Let the Solomon principle bless your life. If you have ached as we've gone through chapters 11 and 12, if there have been times where the Spirit of God has pricked your conscience and you've said, oh my goodness, I deserve justice. I deserve punishment fitting to my crime. Oh Lord, what will I do now? As I see the way you work, I see that I am destroyed. I'm undone. I have no hope before you. Embrace the Solomon principle. God can bless howsoever he sees fit. And the beautiful thing is he doesn't have to answer to nobody when he does it. He just chooses to because he's a God of justice and a God of grace. Out of 
every adversity. That's what David said. Can you not help but see as you read 2 Samuel 12 that God's work is perfect in its justice and its grace? But bigger than that, can you not help but see that God's character is perfect? And he's the one we deeply need to know. Stand with me and let's pray. Lord God, this is far more valuable than any lesson we could ever be taught, anything we could read upon a page or just agree to with our our lips. We in our souls and in our spirits, we need to know, deeply know who you are. You are perfect. You are perfect in justice, holiness and righteousness. You are perfect in grace and mercy and forgiveness. I don't know how you do it, but you are. And together we, this morning, say to you, thank you that you are all that. We worship you. Thank you for that greater son of David who came through Solomon's lineage, who came to give us such grace and to come to teach us such wisdom. We ask that in in this life, we might embrace you more fully and we might know you more deeply. All to your glory, in Christ's name, amen.